Hey guys, welcome. Come on in, grab something to uh, eat over there at the snack table. Uh, there's some coffee and water over there, um, decaf, so grab some of that. Um, thanks for remembering the uh, daylight savings time and uh, for getting uh, one less hour of sleep. Appreciate you showing up. Uh, we're going to try to get going tonight. Uh, we're continuing our conversation about liturgy. As we're here in the season of Lent, um, we're preparing for Easter. And so we thought we'd continue to give you guys an insight into the sort of liturgical framework that we use, which is borrowed from a lot of uh, traditional elements, um, and then sort of has a little bit of our Emmaus Way spin. So come on in, grab something, and sit down, and we'll get going with our call to gather. Tonight we're looking at images of Jesus, um, both uh, artistic images and then images in song. So this first one... um, is uh, a song praise to the Lord, and uh, it's an Appalachian praise song. So uh, join in with us as you pick it up. So we're going to do this in another key, aren't we? My fault, sorry. Let's do this in another key. the Lord who breaks every chain. Praise to the Lord who heals every pain. Praise to the one who's coming again. Praise to the Lord. Amen. So if you're just getting this one, let's do that part again from the beginning. Praise to the Lord who breaks every chain. Praise to the Lord who heals every pain. Praise to the one who's coming again. Praise to the Lord. To the Lord who sets prisoners free. Praise to the Lord who makes the blind see. Praise to the one who wipes away sin. Praise to the Lord. Son, praise to the Son, for sinners has come. 
Praise to the Spirit who Jesus has sent. Praise to the Lord. Praise to the Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Welcome to Emmaus Way. Um, on this uh, third Sunday of Lent, hope that everybody had a relaxing uh, Sunday, one hour shorter. I know that we like looked at the clock at like midnight and we're like, dang it, do you take the hour now or do you wait till you wake up and take the hour? And then we realized we have an eight-month-old and it doesn't matter because he's going to be up at the same time. Um, well, I, my name is Amy and I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus Way and we are so glad to have you all with us tonight. Um, this uh, gathering that we do on Sunday nights is part of um, kind of our weekly rhythm. We also have uh, things going on during the week, but this is really our main kind of uh, gathering where we come and surround the text and uh, break bread and share wine and juice with one another. Um, and we are in the middle of a series on um, kind of the, the rhythms of, uh, of the church service. So tonight we're going to be talking about um, art and aesthetic and worship and why we do things the way we do. Um, but going on during the rest of the week, we have um, several home groups that meet, that share dinner, that um, you know, gather around different, different things, whether it be the text or um, questions or things like that. And if you are interested in, in joining one of those missional, uh, those life groups, uh, talk to Elizabeth Eford, who I don't believe she just walked by. Um, but she'll probably be back, and you'll have a chance to grab her then, or her email is on the sheet. We also have um, uh, our pub group that meets on Thursday nights at Bull McCaves, and that is uh, Dan Rhodes is our contact person for that. We send out an article each week about politics or theology, um, and then gather at the pub to talk about that. Um, we're also involved in several um, missional partnerships. Last week, we got to hear from um, Africa Rising from Jim Thomas. Um, we also were involved with uh, Durham Can and uh, with Reality Ministries and with ABC, uh, AMAC Builds Community. So um, a couple of things coming up in the life of our church. We have um, really exciting things going on surrounding our Easter time uh, on Palm Sunday, which is April 1st, not April 8th. I made that mistake in the uh, weekly, but April 1st, we're going to be doing uh, station worship, which Wade is going to tell us a little bit more about. Would you give us a, a brief... Yeah, so the Stations of the Cross uh, is a tradition that's been in the church a very long time, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years, and it's basically telling a retelling of the story of Jesus in his last days leading up to the cross and, and then the cross. And so we're going to use um, a version that Pope John Paul II did in 1991 where it's got a, a little bit more scriptural tie-in than some of the traditional stations. And so it'll be an opportunity for you all to see sections of Scripture from the story of uh, the crucifixion and then sort of walk them out around the room. So traditionally, people will oftentimes follow a liturgy or a person holding a cross, whatever, and walk through the stations. I think what we're going to do is something a little bit more 
uh, free-for-all where we're going to let people go to different stations. Um, you can certainly read the story in order. We're going to print it out for you, so the scripture and the story will be there for you. But then you can spend more or less time around the room at the different stations. And so several of the small groups have already volunteered to take a station, and uh, we're um, working on getting the sign-ups on uh, the base camp site so that you can see who's grabbed what station. Um, but a station could be as simple as just simply the scripture uh, printed out, a candle, and a place for people to stop and read it. It could be something interactive where if, um, you know, there's a baby crying in the story, then you could have a crying baby at your station. Um, if uh, there's, um, you know, food uh, related to something or, you know, the 30 pieces of silver related to Judas or whatever kinds of things you wanted to do, um, uh, Denise mentioned that when they did this um, back uh, at the Bible church, they had a station where people actually just counted out 30 pieces of silver while they read the story. So um, it really doesn't need to be complex. So we don't want um, anyone to feel intimidated that they need to do something massive for their station. And there's a ton of examples of this online. Dan Rhodes was mentioning that Duke Chapel has their stations up already. You can go in there and just look around. These are kind of placards. Um, that have uh, kind of artwork, metalwork, I guess, um, for the different stations. And so feel free to borrow from other traditions, other places. Um, Susan Jakes was mentioning um, last week that she was riding horses, and there's a whole uh, set of stations of the cross out where she was riding. So this is really something where it doesn't take much effort to find an example if you're looking for one. Uh, so please uh, feel free to um, kind of brainstorm on those ideas and just let us, me or Amy, know what you want to do. And then we're also going to have this prayer station back here that Mark and Katrina have done up as well. And communion will be one of our stations during that day of the Stations of the Cross. And Mark had some he was going to read or mention about the prayer station back here. So one of the things, and I said this a couple of weeks ago, but um, so we have a low table back there and some cushions and... A lot of art supplies, there's pastels and markers and crayons and pencils and all kinds of things like that. And then there are also these little cards right here and some safety pens. Um, what people are doing here is sort of writing on the inside sort of a prayer that they want to sort of have remembered in some kind of physical way uh, throughout Lent. So you can write prayers, pin them up there, visit them you know, each week, um, sort of pray through them, remember them, think about the ways God is been faithful or ways that you haven't understood God's faithfulness or ways you aren't understanding what he's doing, um, all that kind of stuff. There's also this book back there that um, I don't remember, Dale told us about it somehow, so this is called Praying in Color. It's a really cool little thing because it's not about like fine art, it's more like about how you can use doodles and different things to sort of like... I remember Dave Dixon talking a few weeks ago about when he runs, that there's like a certain clarity that um, he experiences from running. I've never experienced anything from running except pain, but with something like this, there, there are ways that you can experience some kind of clarity, get outside yourself a little bit. Um, it's just a way to sort of visually represent prayers and stuff. That'll be back here too, so you can look through that. You can do this at different times during communion if you're wanting to get up during the sermon and move around and that kind of thing, you can go back there and do that. Great. Thanks, Mark and Wade, for that explanation. Um, we're really excited about this uh, station worship. I was uh, reading online today a church in uh, Texas that did uh, the Stations of the Cross um, by church members actually getting tattoos. And then they took pictures of each of the tattoos and the, the larger community walked through it. And I thought that might be a little bit, you know, 
overzealous for us to do this year, but next year. Look forward. Um, that's right, specific, very specific. Um, but we're excited that you all are with us tonight. If you are uh, visiting with us, um, we are happy to have you. Um, I didn't say this before, but we are a community of people that is um, excited to be part of God's redemption in Durham and in the larger community around us. Um, if you are interested in learning more about our community, please feel free to grab me or Dan or Wade or Tim. Um, we'd love to chat with you, get a cup of coffee, but we're glad to have you. Good to see you guys. Thanks, Amy. We're going to continue, uh, as I mentioned, looking at different images of Jesus as a, a kind of a vehicle for talking about art and aesthetic and worship. And so uh, Josh Bussman recommended this song a number of weeks ago, uh, Jesus Was a Capricorn. It's a Chris Christopherson song. And so uh, you certainly can join in. The chorus is easy to sing, but if you want to just listen to this uh, version of Jesus, you might uh, just enjoy kind of listening along. Jesus was a Capricorn, he ate organic foods. He believed in love and peace and never wore no shoes. Long hair, beard, and sandals, and a funky bunch of friends. Reckon they just nail him up if he came down again. Cause everybody's gotta have somebody to look down on. Who they can feel better than anytime they please. Someone doing something dirty, decent folks can't frown on. You can't find nobody else, help yourself to me. Rednecks cuss, hippies fall in here. Others laugh at streets, who laugh at freaks, who laugh at squares. Some folks hate the white, who hate the blacks, who hate the clan. Most of us hate anything that we don't understand. Cause everybody's gotta have somebody to look down on. Who they can't feel better than anytime they please. Someone doing something dirty, decent folks can't frown on. If you can't find nobody else, help yourself to me. Everybody's gotta have somebody to look down on Who they can feel better than anytime they please Someone doing something dirty, decent folks can't frown on You can't find nobody else, help yourself to me Yeah, help yourself to me, buddy
So that was good setup tonight. We're going to look at later some images of Jesus, of kind of how we frame this character that we worship, follow, pursue. So uh, Wade, thanks for getting us thinking about that already. Um, it's good to see you, right? I don't know, uh, those of you who are kind of in the rhythm of school semesters, I'm joining you in that feeling of, oh my God, spring break is over, and I only did about 3% of what I planned to do all week. So if you've got that panic, I hope that you can kind of live into the space of this evening before you're overwhelmed with that at about 9 o'clock tonight and break into shaking and fears and all sorts of things. But uh, it's really good to, to see you guys here. Um, one of the things last week, um, we had Jim Thomas here talking about um, Africa Rising, and in my uh, brain ellipse here, I wanted to pray for Africa Rising, and um, and I'll, I'll let you get summaries from, from Jim that, uh, later, but Africa Rising is one of our primary partnerships, and it's really our international partnership, and Jim was telling a story which uh, I imagine for you guys, it's a little bit of fear-laden story of um, Africa Rising connects ministries in uh, primarily East Africa. Uh, it doesn't raise money for them. It doesn't do things for them. It, 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 it provides a palette for them to be synergetic with each other. But um, you guys are doing some big things. You're transferring your leadership from and your headquarters and everything from the U.S. to, uh, to it will be in Nairobi, I guess, or probably Nairobi. And uh, so uh, we had a uh, coup with us last week who was going to be kind of, is she going to be at U.S. or I, I didn't catch that? She'll be U.S. based. She'll be U.S. based. So just wanted to pray for you guys in this uh, this transition for you guys and, and also invite you as we gather each week in worship and we... Uh, provide space to pray about our lives, we also want to invite you to pray for these partnerships and the ways that we express ourselves missionally in this community. So let me pray for Africa Rising. God, we're thankful for Jim, Gail, their whole family, the vision that they had and the networks that they had to get uh, get this ministry started years ago. And I counted a privilege of kind of being along for the ride early on and seeing the dream that was uh, first an idea that became embodied in uh, a wonderful ministry, one that in many ways demonstrates uh, new pathways for partnerships for folks in the, the northwest part of the world with the continent of Africa and specifically in uh in East Africa, and we pray for their transition, one that is uh, an exciting one for them, one that is very appropriate for their dream and their vision, but one that is a significant change. And we pray for Jim and those who lead that you would give them wisdom, that you would give them a, a sense of vision and a sense of maybe even appropriate out of controlness as uh, as this transition occurs. And we're thankful for um, their work. We're thankful for opportunities that our community will have to be a part of the life of Africa Rising and and certainly the um, the lives of all those that are represented by that. So we thank you for this friendship. We pray as a community that we might gather around as friends, prayers, uh, people that might uh, offer uh, insight, and certainly most of all as learners in this whole process. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hey, this is our time in our worship gathering where we give you a chance to stand up, uh, greet the people that are around you, offer them the peace of Christ. If you are around somebody you don't know, introduce yourself, and I'll give us a shout in about two minutes. Well, we have some guests tonight with us from Trinity uh, Methodist downtown, and we wanted to welcome you guys um, Trinity uh, always had a special place in our heart when we were 
we, we had this beautiful little space that we loved on Mangum Street right in downtown, and we were outgrowing it in lots of ways. And um, as a community, it's hard as a church to kind of pick up and move. And we kind of love that part of Emmaus Way. We're in some ways a precarious community. If somebody says you're, you have no place, then we have no place. Um, but... Um, we had this wonderful state of riches of where the Reality Center had invited us to move in here, as well as Trinity Methodist to use their space. And boy, that was an act of kindness that um, is, I think, very significant in the life of multiple communities who are trying to work in God's kingdom to support each other. So it's a delight to have you guys with us because you certainly were deep friends to us in that time of transition. And, and that was uh, lastingly meaningful for us. So thank you guys. Um, We've got one Josh Busman with us tonight who's, we're going to do a, a sermon dialogue in tandem and, and this is going to be a really easy night for me because um, Josh is a lot smarter than me in so many ways and so I get that opportunity to defer. Uh, so maybe you're, even without knowing the topic, maybe now you're thinking of like the most difficult question you've ever framed. Uh, this might be the night that you get to ask that question, uh, seeing that Josh is here and excited about getting it from you. Uh, but one of the things that we've been doing in, um, the, um, is crafting a conversation about uh, the, the, the rhythm of, of worship in general, but, but certainly worship in our community. And, and there's all kinds of, I, I wish th- to do this properly, we need to like talk for two hours and clarify terms and then do it. But none of you would be here by the time we finish clarifying terms. So I understand that we're doing some heavy generalizations that we have to kind of be generous with each other about. But one of the things that, that always keep in mind as we're talking about liturgy, lectionary, and worship, that that we don't, as a community, imagine ourselves as people who became worshipers at 501 tonight when Wade started playing uh, Appalachian Praise, and, and that we're not going to stop at, I'd say 6.30, but you know it's really probably 6.37 when we finish tonight. We're, we're not going to stop at that moment either, but that we see worship as a posture of how we live with an awareness of a gracious, creating, redeeming God, and, and really all of us, even people who would not acknowledge the presence of God, and maybe they're right about that, but we're worshipers. We're, we're aware of things that are larger than ourselves. We're pursuing ends that are more than just our own lives. So we have that sense of totality of worship that's really significant to us. We're also very sensitive to the notion of, of holistic worship. So Mark tonight is reminding us that... Um, we worship more than just with our minds or our voices and singing, uh, that there's the opportunity for us to use our bodies in worship, whether that is painting, drawing, our creativity, getting up and moving. Um, I was chuckling with several folks that uh, uh, through the years we've had people who've knit during our worship gathering, which I've taken as a wonderful compliment because I, I, I have people in my own household who func- function better as being present in the moment by moving their hands and doing something. So we understand that worship is holistic. It's not not something that we just start and stop, but there is something sacred about gathering in worship. And as a community that's a Eucharistic community, we're very committed to the sacred nature of gathering at the table each week as a community of persons. And so we're over the next few weeks kind of breaking that down, working through some of the elements of our worship gathering to invite you not only to participate in those things more fully, but also to co-create with us that community experience. Uh, So that's what we're doing. Uh, You'll uh, you'll get a sense of that um, as we move along. And and this week, um, 
we're going to talk about the role of art and aesthetics in a, in a worship gathering. And Josh, tell people what you're working on. for Josh is a musicologist at UNC and has a fantastic um, dissertation in motion. Yeah, so I am a third-year student at the Ph.D. in musicology program at UNC, um, which probably is part of why I ended up at Emmaus Way, because when I showed up here and said to someone in the congregation, oh, oh yeah, I'm a musicologist, they said, oh, great, we have three of, you're the third one, right? We, we already have two of those. And so the excitement of just not having to explain again that musicology is a real field and that, uh, that you can get a degree in it, that was, that was very nice. It's a promise employment, though. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> About as much as any academic yeah. position does, yeah. Um, so, so I'm working on a dissertation at the moment um, about evangelical praise and worship music. Um, and so a lot of what I'm interested in is music, sort of uh, the musical medium as an unquestioned theological source um, of, of formation. Um, one of the things I've been really interested in, and I'm, I'm glad we, we use the word liturgy, um, in a lot more generous sense, I think, in Emmaus Way than in other communities that I've been a part of. But um, I'm really interested in a lot of my work in capturing a very broad definition of the word liturgy. Um, liturgies are things that are formative to the ways in which we go about our lives. Um, and these are things that happen not just in this room, as you were saying, between 5 and 6.30 on, on Sunday evenings. So things that happen all around us. Um, there's a liturgy of the mall. There's a liturgy of the basketball court. There's a liturgy um, that, that we experience here. And so um, one of the things I'm interested in is the way in which music is capable of shaping real important theological content in its sort of materials themselves. That's, that's a lot of what I'm doing. So. Ben Haas, you're on call tonight as well. We've got a particularly hard question. We're looking your way as well. But, um, you know, um, and, and you say basketball is a liturgy. I, I would call that a lament, really, at yeah. this point in time. But, that, you know, what do I know? Um, but um, I guess for all of us. Uh, the, um, but one of the questions I wanted to frame uh, for you first is, and I know we at Emmaus Way come from lots of different traditions, lots of different backgrounds. Uh, but I'm going to throw this at you. Um, what is your experience with the use of art and aesthetics in, in, in a, the setting of a worship gathering or a worshiping community? Why don't we just kind of short thoughts, just throw out some, some things of what are, what are your experiences with art, worship, and an aesthetic as a part of a gathered community? Does that make sense? What's your background? Hey, Tim. Would you go ahead and define aesthetics? <laughs> the, uh, I don't have a 25-cent definition, but I'm thinking about the, the, the construction of uh, physical, visual things related to, to beauty and integrating that with our sense of worshiping God. So space, body, broader sense. Uh, one of the things that Emmaus Way is we, as a community, largely through Wade's studio, began with lots of, and there's lots in this room, lots of gifted musicians who are part of our community. So music has been a significant part of our liturgy and our aesthetic, but we know there's certainly much, much more to that. Yeah. So other people, kind of what, what your, thanks, Trigger, what, what kind of experiences have you have with art as it relates to, to church, so to speak? And those would be some exciting ones and maybe some negative ones as well. Yeah, Ian. I, I used to go to a church in Raleigh um, called Vintage 21 that had a very cohesively branded identity as a church. 
and that I had actually attended some meetings on the design team just out of curiosity, and they very much treated it as a brand. And coming, I, that's the kind of thing that I'm learning in my classes is how to design a, a visual identity for an entity, and that's what they were doing. So it wasn't so much any personal expression, but they had created some sort of visual cohesiveness that had, been, that had stayed consistent for years, and you saw a certain element and recognized it as a, a vintage 21 thing. Right. Yeah, so Ian is a junior at North Carolina State School of Design and is uh, gifted in multiple mediums of art. We had him working in a studio in, during Advent for us. But that's, that's a great connection, and it, that's going to come up. Remember that comment as we get to some of these images, that art for church can be part of a marketing or an, uh, a, a uh, demonstration of who we are, part of a coordinated effort to stamp oneself as unique and, and different. That's a, it's a great example. Other examples? Tim, I would say that a lot of my experience with art in church, you know, both as a participant and as someone who's just experiencing that, in context is that so much time the way that it's been talked about is art as a, art as, we're trying to create a product with art. And so maybe, looking at what you're saying, I did a, the whole reason we would do art in a church setting is because we're trying to get some sort of defined result. And so art is a way that we can do that. We can draw more people in. We can create a sense of worship. We can somehow use art as a filter through which we can drive our efforts to create some sort of desired product. Right. It's not so much about the art as it is about what we're trying to get out of. That's a great point because art can be very what you call functional in church life with an outcome-based mentality. You guys know I mentioned last week I'm reading a book on a young uh, um, atheist woman's uh, joining Thomas Road Baptist Church, Jerry Falwell's church. And her language around the church gathering, she, you want to take a guess what she calls church? Are you going to sermon? Is what they call it. Are you going to sermon? So everything that's aesthetic is designed to promote a sermon experience. Even though the music to her, who never grew up in church before, is powerful at times. In fact, she calls one singer uh, who just kind of overwhelms her with feelings as the um, uh, the WMS, the weapon of mass salvation. You know, so there's like this this kind of very musical thing that's happening, but it's happening at sermon, and that's what Ben's talking about. That it's functional, and and a lot of you probably have grown up in environments where the the the, particularly music, but other things were crafted to make the person who was standing up front uh, really look good and ready to execute what was really important. One of the things, we won't talk about us a whole lot tonight, but one of the things that we started when we were doing Emmaus Way is saying we didn't want art to be the illustration to the important thing. We wanted it to stand. So sometimes the music that we do explores the topic of the conversation farther than the conversation itself. So that's a fantastic. Other people, kind of your own experiences, positive, negative, otherwise. Yeah, but that's I think you make a good point about how there's this uneasy relationship between artists and art in the church, that sometimes the art can be subservient to the church message. Um, but I've also kind of experienced the opposite. Like where I went to college, there was this huge music program. Whenever the choir would play in church, we was going to have twice the attendance otherwise. Yeah. And so a lot of times it was kind of like, I mean, I literally had friends that majored in organ performance. Um, and like that's all I did was just play the organ and people would come to church to hear people perform. 
Uh, and sometimes, because they would always talk about how it's a worship experience and all that, but sometimes you got the feeling that wasn't the whole story. Mm-hmm. It's like if you've ever been to a central football game and people are walking out, and, and you might, Jesse might say, who won? I forgot who won the game. But uh, Julie might say, but did you see the band? That was absolutely, you know, in some ways the band overwhelms the football experience because it's that significant to what's, what's happening there. Absolutely. Thanks, Vanessa. Yeah, wait a minute. The church I worked at in college and just afterward um, had the, the, the most um, kind of intense uh, aesthetic fight about the fact that they had to get new carpet and they couldn't find choir robes to match the color exactly of the carpet. So that was a big conundrum for about six months. Now, we're not, we're not going to tap all of Wade's stories, but, <laughs> but ask Wade at some point tonight, and, and there's several musicians here that uh, Jesse and Dale and Tim and otherwise, but how does, because uh, at one point you had kind of a major label deal dangled before you, how does that function related to worship? Uh, Wade was once asked to replace a lead singer for his church band in, in Northern California because the not as good singer was a lot cuter. Is that right? Uh, and so there's, there's, there's sometimes a, a real trade-off that goes off in, in, in worship settings and worshiping communities related to art. Uh, and, and we'll talk more about that. Wade's got some more than enough stories to tell. Yeah, Mark Williams. I was going to say that, um, so Katrina, my wife, is into photography, as, as a lot of you know, and I've been really interested in architecture at different points, and one of the things that that is sort of tantamount, or, or at least central, I guess, to both disciplines is the use of light. And so many times, like in churches, architecturally that were built you know before a modern era light was a really important thing that was considered but that's virtually not considered at all for the last you know hundred years and so even like the way that that churches I've been in have been constructed like what you say Tim where there's like okay here's like this is all the chairs are pointing this direction because this is where the sermon is going to happen and we haven't really thought about where the windows are going to go or, or whatever that's sort of an afterthought but the way that we use light or the ways that we don't think about how light affects our experience aesthetically, I think is really important. And you know, this is a total tangent to that except for light, the idea that art is not just a function of worship outcomes, but it's a function of the culture that we live in. Dan was pointing out one of the things that's fairly common in, in kind of enlightenment era Christian art is the light of God descends where, what part of the body do you imagine is lit up in a lot of painting and work at that time? It's the brain, it's the head, it's the thought, it's, it's showing what's important, so to speak. So our art prejudices kind of our physical values, it prejudices this is our cultural values. There's a lot going on to the decisions that we make related to art. Now, I realize that some of you probably are, have been in traditions that were very, very resistant to art, low art, some that worked really hard about that. And so this is all kind of part of a conversation for us to talk about, again, why do we do what we do? But also, as a community, we are always wanting to imagine what are things that we need to be doing in a representational way, in a creative way, in a risk-taking way. What can we do as a community that expands our, not just our vocabulary, of worship, but our experiences of worship. So, I mean, that's a good sampling of some of the issues that are involved. Now, here's a second question, and Josh, this is where you get really involved here. Um, How does worship, the worshiping context of a gathered community, how does it change the use of art 
or how we um, how we want to kind of embody art. Could you start with that, Josh, and maybe give some thoughts on, you know, when, we, when we're not just working as artists, we're not just in our studios somewhere, we're not just, and again, remember a very generous definition of art. You do artistic expression all day long. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a part of your life. We're expressive people. But when those expressions become part of a, a worshiping context, what are some of the things that we might be sensitive to? Yeah, well, um, I think for me, any good piece of art, like any sort of authentic expression of worship, is a, is a truth-telling experience. Uh, it's a, and it's an experience that doesn't shy away from the truth. Um, I, I think, in response to this sort of last question that you asked, my first thought was I think a lot of churches that I've been in have taken this sort of Hippocratic approach to art that art should first and foremost do no harm. And so what you end up with is this sort of like pastel Jesus and the very like Barbara Streisand soft focus. Um, because if we're offending people, then that's, we're stepping outside of the bounds of what art should be doing. Um, and I think that, that, I guess first and foremost, art needs to tell the truth, but I think also art needs to be, um, in some sense, irreducible. Uh, it doesn't need to be something that we can look at and sort of immediately explain away. Um, that oftentimes is the mark of a bad piece of art. Um, I think about film, I think might be the best, the sort of most culturally relevant and the best example of that, where um, if there's a film where you can encapsulate all of the good parts in that two-minute trailer, that means it's a, probably a pretty poor film, right? Um, when, when you're explaining a, a film that really works well, when you're, when you're trying to relate that to someone else, you may explain sort of how the arc of the narrative goes, but even if you can get all of the plot points into your description, there's something irreducible about that film that requires that other person to see it, and they have to experience it. Um, and so I, I think worship and art both have this sort of irreducible element of experience that's really key. Yeah, weighing in on that. I mean, this is something that Dan and I have done some work on. Think about when you've been in a worship gathering that was unbelievably boring. Probably one of the reasons that it was boring, because it's never in everyone's cultural taste. You know, Wade could play song X and this side of the room like it, and uh, somebody else plays song Y. I mean, it's, it's never taste, but it gets boring when things are trivialized. And one of the things that happens as a part of kind of, the, uh, kind of the American worship ethos is what we tend to do is we only talk about the things that we all agree on. Right? So the gospel of what we all agree on gets down to things like, hmm, Jesus, he loves us. <laughs> he really loves us. And, and it'd be nice to be with him. You know, I mean, but then, then the next, you start to say something political or something controversial or something challenging or, you know, Trigger back there makes some comment about the gender of God, and all of a sudden we're in big trouble because now we've gotten into uncomfortable space, so to speak. And so that's one of the reasons that people are bored in church gatherings is because whether it's theology or art, it is put in a box that no risk is taken, and we're only... I mean, those of you who have a significant other or a spouse, you if you only talked about the things that you agreed on totally... It'd be, hi, honey, <laughs> love you. Well, it's Tuesday, maybe not. You know, hi, honey. You know, I mean, it, it, it would not be a big dialogue, so to speak. So I cut you off, but that's a good point. No. Um, yeah, I think that was, that was most of it. I think another thing that 
I, I guess art needs to do is it needs to be embedded in a community. I think so often when you look at expressions of Christian art, right, we'll say Christian art, Christian music, right, when what we should be saying is Christian arts or Christian musics, um, art is, is always embedded within a community of people who are interested in interpreting and living into the story that that art is trying to tell. Um, so uh, art, art has to be not only uh, willing to tell the truth, but it has to be willing to tell a truth that's in some way relevant to the community that it grows out of. Yeah. And there's an idea, and I, I think a lot of you artists have, have, have been passionate about this here. There has to be some measure of accessibility in a worship setting. The idea is not to be mysterious to the point of incomprehensible, but there has to be some sort of invitation to interact with the box, with art, without putting it in a safe box that says there are no mysteries explored. I mean, one of the things that you guys know very well is that there are moods, emotions, fears, and questions that we have that are asked more powerfully in art form than they are in a set of words. Because let's say I'm talking about well, Gail, tell me about your deepest, darkest fear. You know, and, and we're just kind of talking about words. Basically, what's the medium is Gail's and my words about our deepest, darker, darkest fears. But there's, and Gail's a painter. If I said, Gail, paint your most terrifying moments, we might look at that and go, I'm as terrified as you are by those things, and I didn't even know to be terrified until you've portrayed that for me. And so art is a, has a, is a powerful medium that not only is message in of itself, but it expands what we're struggling with, what we're rejoicing with, what we're afraid of. Uh, it, it, it's very significant. Yeah, go for it, Josh. Yeah, and I was going to say, when I say that art is irreducible, obviously that doesn't preclude accessibility. It needs to be accessible. Well, what it means is, uh, I, I think that this is so deeply rooted in the gospel and, and the way that Jesus talked about things. When someone approached Jesus and asked him a very straightforward theological question, right? What do I have to do to be saved? John? Exactly. He says, well, you know, there was a farmer. And that farmer had three fields, right? And it seems like such a non sequitur in the moment. It can be such a frustrating means of responding to what you see as such a direct question. But I think the reality of the gospel is that is the only answer that's sufficiently complicated and that has enough in it that we've been talking about it for 2,000 years. Um, so it's not reducible to this sort of simple platitude. Um, it, it has a richness. It's very richly textured in a way that um, this sort of you know, point-by-point point, theological blow-by-blow blow would not be. So art is deeply related to a narrative, a story. And for us, this, there's this biblical, historical, traditional narrative of God's work in this place, in this world, taking it toward a destination. And stories, I mean, think about your the story that you love the most. I mean, you know, I, I have several stories that I'm just passionate about. And if you were to ask me, give me a sentence on that story, I'm going to refuse to do it because I don't want to reduce the book that changed my life, the movie that I cried through for the final two hours. I don't want to do that. And in some ways, what we're, we're experiencing and worshiping and a part of is this deep, historical, traditional narrative of God as both a creator and a redeemer. And as we're experiencing those things, um, we are worshiping into that story rather than trying to, in some ways, is what Ian is telling us, maybe package the story so that it's always meaningful. And, 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 and in doing so, it becomes less so. How about for one of you guys? Well, uh, Josh and I are talking about what 
a worshiping context does to art. How about a thought, a single thought or maybe two about things that you think are important in terms of a community experience that is a worship experience as it relates to art? What's a value that you think is important? Yeah, sure. I mean, kind of obvious word that often, or can often be thrown on the word, art would be beauty itself. Um, kind of think of that saying when people say, what the two things that separate human beings from the other animals is human beings can think about the fact that they're thinking, and art. And it's kind of interesting when, when you think about the Christian narrative that if you really, really think about it, there is no reason, like some compelling reason, that God had to create anything. There's no like, ultimate foundational reason that God had to make human beings or the universe. God did and declared it good and I believe found something that just was beautiful in it. And I think with art, I mean, kind of like you know, Ben was saying, you know, some churches try to create art with some specific thing to a specific point. And sometimes in creating art, it's, it's part of the way of being an image bearer. And sometimes you just make things because you can and because they're beautiful. And something serves no other purpose other than it just makes you smile or feel this thing. And in that way, it doesn't have to say anything beyond we create things in imaging God who creates things and it makes us smile. And sometimes that's enough of a reason. Yeah, Trigger, I, I love that point. Um, I think that so often what art does for me is it, it sort of reveals a different economy. And we've had this conversation, I think, before around other topics. But um, so much of the world that we live in is based on an economy of scarcity. There's never enough. We're trying to scrimp and save and sort of cobble together the bare minimum that we need to get by. And what art says is not only is there enough, there's way more than enough. Um, it embodies this sort of alternative economy that we see at the table every week uh, in a way that I think is really palpable, right? This, this pointlessness is something that, that is an asset, not a detriment. Yeah. It's funny, too. You talk about beauty, and I think one of the things that we're, you're talking about of a created world that's irrationally loving, I mean, that it's irrational that God did what God did. And, and in some ways, the marring of that world uh, makes uh, lament something beautiful as well. And so there is a whole range of experiences related to beauty. Let me move us to a different idea. Now, this is a, a gross generalization, but it might be helpful to you. Um, Amy, Dan, um, text group, whoever it was, this way and others, were, were talking about, for just for a simple way of thinking about art and Christian gatherings, if you could imagine um, a, a road with two pretty intense ditches on both sides, and maybe the goal is to stay out of both of those ditches. Um, one of the things that we came up as a way of maybe describing what is off the road, so to speak, with, with, but very, very common in, 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 in Christian worship, so to speak, is ditch number one is um, in, in, in a worshiping experience, privileging either energy or romanticism to the, 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 the 
uber extreme. So when somebody says, Do you have, did you have an incredible worship experience? Your response is, dude, I am so fired up. I, it's just unbelievable how fired up I am because of, and to some degree, the subtext of that is that if it's meaningful, it's, it has those type of feelings. So I, I know those of you who've been married five, ten years, you know, you wake up in the morning after 12 years together and you go, I'm so fired up to be married to you. I mean, you know, it's not necessarily realistic to how life operates, but it very much says that maybe worship is something that helps me tolerate my barely tolerable life. You know, to, to, if, if I can just make it to Thursday when my home group meets, then if what happens like on Sunday, if it could just, or if it can help me not do the incredibly fun thing that I want to do on Tuesday that I sense might be wrong, then I've had the appropriate worship. So in some ways, part of our, 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 our a worshiping ditch, and this is not a diatribe against energy, but it can be that mindset that, that, that worship always privileges a sense of romanticism and feeling. And so what a worship experience is, is how you feel about it. In fact, as we talk about it, one of the things that was very challenging for us, but when a group of us were thinking about doing Emmaus Way, and there weren't many of us, um, Denise and Elizabeth and Phil and Sue, just a few people, one of the things we talked about is that we didn't necessarily want to do a worship experience that was and I'm overstating here, a pep rally or something that was always based on feeling. So that's one ditch. Here's another ditch. Another ditch is the opposite, and it's control. We've talked a little bit about that, the idea of order and control, that in some ways, in one way, it's authentic if we don't know what's going to happen, but we're fired up. And the other ditch, it's authentic if it always fits in the box that we've made for it. And that's a, a, a sense of, and, 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 and what's the subtext for that is the reality that we're saying, God, if God is real, God fits into my context. Whatever I'm doing, a real God fits into my life the way I want God to fit into my life. And what Josh is talking about is a lot of those inane questions that Jesus got that provoked a story rather than an answer was, what can I do to be saved? Because I want to know exactly what that is such that I'm always doing it. Or what do I need to be perfectly righteous? Because I'm afraid that I might be doing some good things that don't matter to God. And I only want to do the good things that do matter to God. So if you can imagine that in our big vernacular as it relates to worship, one of the things we struggle with is this ditch of romanticism, of experience, always emotion-driven, and then the other ditch is control, always wanting God to fit into. So liturgy in that second definition is crafting space where God might show up in a polite and tame way, so to speak. Josh, any thoughts on those two ditches? And then Josh is going to show us a few. Uh, why don't you make a comment, and then I'm going to go over to the slide projector. And uh, Josh has picked out some art for us to look at tonight. And we worked really hard to get this screen to be green. I mean, I was really frustrated that I couldn't get a perfectly lime green screen. But after an hour of setting this up, it's perfectly been executed. Um, that's sarcasm. Um, but, uh, but I think you'll be able to see this. So why don't you make a comment, and then I'm going to be your your projector boy. Yeah, just so you know, the, the slide that's being projected right now is white. So that is the amount of color tent that you're going to see on the on the pictures we're about to look at. Um, yeah, I think regarding these two ditches, um, 
I think, again, the parables of Jesus form a sort of perfect uh, paradigm for us to follow. Um, you, you talked about how these, these stories often seem aggressively anti-sort of control, anti-order. We want the simple platitude answer, and what we get is this story that doesn't quite fit our expectations. But at the same time, I don't think any of Jesus' parables are really like feel-good, romantic, sort of energizing stories in the way that we you know, want them to be. This is not a story where you know, we, we hit the field goal at the last second to win the game. This is often the story where uh, there's a lot of tedious speed work involved in our response to the story. So I think that, that the parables of Jesus form this really interesting sort of model uh, that, that art can follow where um, it's, it's, it's not interested in giving these very sort of straight rote answers to questions, but it's also not interested in sort of making us feel good all the time either. Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, so... Great. Okay, so the first slide, some of you will recognize if you've seen the movie Dogma. There we go. Buddy Jesus, right. Yeah, so, um, I mean, uh, any sort of immediate reactions, maybe one-word reactions to Buddy Jesus? Hey. <laughs> I like that one. Hey. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah, so this is a Jesus who's, who's very interested in sort of being your, your sidekick, your wingman, right? He's, he's right there to do, he's, he's down to do whatever you're, uh, you're getting into for the evening, so. This Jesus has the t-shirt on while he's walking beside you. If you think I'm holy, I'm just the wingman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and I think it relates closely to the next picture that we have. Which is a little fuzzy, but this is tattooed Jesus. Um, oftentimes, I, I think a lot of caricatures of Jesus put Jesus in this uh, sort of warrior mode, especially in uh, traditions of Christianity that are very focused on the second coming and uh, this sort of triumphant Jesus, this Christus Victor image. Um, so Jesus is this like rough and tumble guy's guy who's you know tatted up and riding a motorcycle and all these things. Uh, this is this is something that we uh, we use Jesus as the justification for all of our masculine insecurities. I mean, he's a pretty good-looking guy. I, would, I wouldn't mind having that Jesus as a boyfriend. Okay, so this is a painting by, uh, he's a Spanish Renaissance painter named uh, Francisco Zerberon. Uh, and this painting is just called Agnus Dei. Um, we, we so often have the image of Christ as lamb, I think, in Christian uh, iconography and in Christian language. And uh, for me, this painting, even though it's almost 500 years old, brings home that idea more powerfully than, uh, than about anything else. Um, I think of the, there's a, a saying that the Moravians have, uh, our lamb has conquered, let us follow him. Um, and so the, the sort of complete militaristic folly of that statement uh, reveals something I think uh, powerful that's also revealed in this image, the idea that the person that we serve is not this burly, tattooed, uh, victorious sort of military hero. Uh, but instead is this 
humble, gentle, crucified, bound and gagged lamb um, that, that we see over and over again throughout the, the thousands of years of Christian history. Okay, this is uh, a painting called The Procession to Calvary by one of my favorite painters, uh, Peter Bruegel, the Elder. This is another Renaissance painter, I don't know why I seem to pick those. Um, but what you'll see is Calvary is the thing that's happening all the way in the back right corner where you see people gathered around. And if, if it were more zoomed in, you would see that there are actually three crosses in the middle of that. Um, uh, I love this painting. Uh, it's very similar to another one that he did called The Fall of Icarus, where uh, he takes these big mythic themes and he takes the moment that you're looking for and puts it in the background and makes you focus on everything that would traditionally be the background. Um, and so what we have is the grieving women here right at the front and the full display of Roman militaristic might that would have accompanied the crucifixion, that is what's put forefront. Um, and then the crucifixion is sort of happening way in the distance. Um, I, I think this is an interesting reversal of the way that we typically think of the crucifixion story. Um, and in, in that reversal, it forces us to deal with different elements of the story that maybe we, we would leave out otherwise. Okay, this is a traditional uh, altarpiece um, that you would have seen in pretty much any Catholic church um, from the 11th or 12th century onward. Um, and this, I think, represents more perfectly than anything this idea that this ditch of order. Um, we have the angels lined up in perfect little rows, right? They're all sort of fanning out. This is like the Olin Mills Jesus. If you ever did those Olin Mills family portraits, right? This guy has matched everyone by height. He's got them in the rows. They're fanning out from the center. Like this is really a perfectly constructed uh, picture. And then we have additionally on the, on the sort of bottom, we have hell on the right side, heaven on the, on the left side. The tombs being burst open in the middle, and then, of course, uh, Jesus right in the center. So this is this very ordered, rank-and-file, sort of black-and-white picture um, that, that is, is characteristic of, of the tradition as well. This is the last judgment. Right. There's a very thick line between the right and left side of the painting. Yeah. Yeah, so this is the famous... Uh, Piss Christ uh, that was done by uh, Andreas Seriano, uh, I guess about 10 years ago, um, where he took a crucifix, a sort of traditional Catholic crucifix, and then put it into a jar of urine. So this was obviously a very provocative piece. Um, and again, this is, this is a piece of art that is using Christian iconography, but in this instance coming from entirely outside of the tradition. Um, and again, forcing us to reevaluate the way that these symbols are used, the way that they have been used, and the way that we will continue to use them. Um, obviously, by the sort of controversy that this spurred on Christian sides and the enthusiasm with which this was received uh, in a lot of artistic circles, um, we see that these symbols, these, these artistic markers of our faith traditions are not something that are... Um, that are easily explainable. They're not something that are sort of easily articulatable within uh, the ways that we talk to each other. It's something that, that carries a very visceral response from us. Um, they, there, are those of, there are those of us that when we see this picture, there's this very visceral engagement with it. Um, and, and so I, I think this 
the, the controversy around this piece of art and the, and the piece of art itself really brought home for me the power that these symbols still have uh, in our, our contemporary culture. Okay, this was the, I mean, I think this is like the seventh one, so this can be the last one. Um, this is uh, an icon uh, called Christ the Redeemer, which was painted by a Russian Orthodox painter named uh, Andrei Rublev, who's the same guy who did the icon of the Oaks of Mamre that is at the center of our uh, painting back here. Uh, Carol Baker took Rublev's Trinity icon based on the story of, of Abraham and the Oaks of Mamre as his, uh, uh, she took it as her jumping off point. Um, and so you see her interpretation of that icon at the center. Um, so this, I, I, for me, was, was an example of the ways in which art it has always been and I think will continue to be used for very specific liturgical functions within the church, right? This is a, a picture that would have been hung in a Russian Orthodox church. And uh, I think it's important, as we have sort of looked at, at a couple of these, to, to understand how much a picture like that would affect any interaction that you would have with the person of Jesus in the language of the church, uh, in the hymns of the church, right? If, if I'm singing a hymn that has Jesus' name in it, I'm going to sing it differently if there's a giant picture of Buddy Christ at the front of the auditorium or if I'm in a sort of cathedral, right, to think about space uh, and I have this Rublev icon hanging. So, um, yeah. So I want to invite you to kind of a conclusion of this. This is one of the things as we were framing this week, we understood we weren't going to finish this. This is, we're going to get back to this in about two weeks. But here's the, and, and the, the conclusion of this is what does it mean for us to be a creative, creating, humble, uh, inviting, inclusive, worshiping community. What is it? And, and so here's the invitation to you is I would love for you to be thinking about ways as a community that we uh, offer opportunities to worship outside of the box or perhaps outside of purely an experiential way, but also for you to realize that we're inviting you to be part of that experience for us. This is something that uh, this, the past several months, we've had such a wonderful ex just sense of people creating in this community. Uh, Mark and Katrina's uh, photography uh, demonstration over Advent was absolutely beautiful. Last year, Wade's idea of, of having a kind of physical massage for the community as a part of an Advent experience so that our bodies were touched and looked at and we were aware of maybe physically how we might need to experience healing and redemption. Um, uh, people who have, uh, Sarah, Mark, people who have worked really hard through the years of crafting prayer space and art space and things like that. There's lots of things that we've done as a community, but we are reminding ourselves that as a community, we're not just an interpreting community. It's something that we do really well as a community. Is we gather around, we didn't do it tonight, but we gather around a biblical text and we speak and we listen to each other and we construct and we ask even of the most difficult passages of scripture, uh, like last year when we did Joshua and Judges, we asked the problematic question, how is this scripture to us? Um, but there's even a broader sense of understanding for us as a community, what does it mean to live with a posture that we are worshiping, a speaking, a loving, a gracious, a healing, a redeeming, uh, a creating God? And so this is an invitation for us to think as a community of how do we worship together? What are things that we are maybe not including in the 
language of worship. One of the things we're deeply passionate about here is that mission is a deep part of spiritual formation. You don't worship so that you get fired up and go and do mission because you don't want to do it. Uh, Mission is an expression of the heart of people who are walking with and and following God. So you're being invited to kind of think about this. And as we we gather back on this in a week or so, we will talk more about what, what worship looks like as a specific community for us. But Josh, I want to thank you. Uh, Josh has, uh, I, I read kind of the rough draft of, of Josh's dissertation proposal. It's really wonderful. I mean, the, the, your, your sense of understanding of kind of the whole history of praise and worship uh, music, its limitations, its possibilities, how it functions is absolutely fantastic. I mean, I, I want to tag him as somebody who would say, hey, I'd love to know more, to ask more questions of you about that experience as you begin to, to start start writing. So uh, again, Josh, thank you for lending your time this week. And I gave you lots of preparation time, uh, like maybe yesterday. Hey, Josh, you know, you're doing a sermon with me, right? Uh, so uh, thank you for doing that. And Wade, I'll invite you and, uh, and uh, Tim and Dale to lead us into confession and absolution tonight. And, and Dan is going to be kind of our, albeit brief, preacher tonight in terms of uh, speaking the words of the table and in reminding us that this worship gathering, even though it was in some ways more of a, 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 a mind conversation is part of a a narrative of worship. So thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for finding those images, Josh, and for going through those. As I mentioned, our songs tonight, if you look through the different lyrics, they are uh, different images of Jesus as well. And uh, so our confession is a story um, written by David Olney that uh, Emilio Harris sung. and uh, it's a story of a ma- magician, kind of a, a guy who's a scam artist who's alive during the time of Jesus and sort of his perspective on Jesus. And then we have a song by Rich Mullins for our absolution that's called Hold Me, Jesus, that I think is a more personal vision of, of a prayer asking for Jesus to be with us. So as we said before, don't feel like you're stuck to your chair. You're welcome to move around, move into the prayer station to prepare for the table. And uh, this is really a story told in a storytelling kind of way. So feel free to listen uh, to this one as we're doing the confession and then uh, sing with us on the absolution. I could tell you black was white I could tell you day was night Not only that I could tell you why Back then I could really tell a lie Well I'd hire a kid To say that he was lame Then I'd touch him Make him walk again Then I'd pull some magic trick Pretend to heal the sick I was taking everything they had to give It wasn't 
all that bad a way to live. Well, I'm in this desert town, it's hot as hell. And no one's buying what I got to sell. I make my lame kid walk, make a dumb guy talk. I'm preaching up a storm both night and day. But everyone just turns and walks away. Well, I can see that I'm only wasting time. So I head across the road to drink some wine. This old man comes up to me. He says, I've seen you on the street. You're pretty good, if I do say so myself. But the guy that came through here last month, he was something else. Instead of calling out for fire from above, he just gets real quiet, talks about love. And I'll tell you something funny, he didn't want nobody's money. No, I'm not exactly sure what all this means but it's the damnedest thing I swear I've ever seen Since that time, every town's the same. I can't make a dime. I don't know why I came. I decide I'll go and find him. Find out who's behind him. He has everyone convinced he's for real. Well, I figure we can work us out a deal. So he offers me a job, I say fine. He says I'll get paid off on down the line. Well, I guess I'll string along. Don't see how too much can go wrong. As long as he pays my way, I guess I'll follow. We're headed for Jerusalem. Tomorrow.
Sometimes my life just don't make sense at all The mountains look so big My faith just seems so small So hold me Jesus Cause I'm shaking like a leaf You've been king of my glory you be my prince of peace Start from the top if you're just learning this one Sometimes my life Sometimes my life just don't make sense at all When the mountains look so big And my faith just seems so small So hold me Jesus I'm shaking like a leaf You have been king of my glory Won't you be my prince of peace When I wake up in the night Feel the dark so hot inside my soul, swear there must be blisters on my heart. So hold me, Jesus, cause I'm shaking like a leaf. You've been king of my glory, won't you be my prince of peace? Surrender, don't come natural to me. Rather fight you for something I don't really want. Take what you've given I need. I beat my head against so many walls. Now I'm falling down, falling on my knees. The Salvation Army bands playing this hymn. And your grace rings out so deep. Makes my resistance seem so thin So hold me, Jesus Cause I'm shaking like a leaf You have been king of my glory Won't you be my prince of peace? Singing, hold me, Jesus Cause I'm shaking like a leaf you have been king of my glory, won't you be my prince of peace? You have been king of my glory, won't you be my prince of peace? You ever have that striking sense that you're just completely out of your element? Uh, that sense maybe for those of you, like, I am not a computer tech person. And there are times when I find myself hanging out with people who know tech language, and they start to speak it quickly in a jargon that all of a sudden makes me feel like I'm nodding my head, but I have no idea what is going on. 
And they're talking about giga webs or, you know, code programming, zeros and ones and different things. And I'm kind of shaking my head saying, I have no earthly clue what in the world you're talking about, how I could ever make that work and how I could make the connections. Tonight, our conversation was probably a little bit odd for a lot of us. My sense is that we probably struggle a lot of times to think through what are the connections between art and the gospel of Jesus Christ? How does the gospel actually connect to something like art and the way that art plays a role in our liturgy? I think we do that for several reasons. One of those is because we as preachers are often bad at art. And we tend to come off in our sermons of laying out the gospel as if there are always three points to what Jesus is saying. They can be clearly defined. And once Jesus has said them, then Jesus sprinkles in a little application at the end and you take it home with you. And that is what the gospel is. And then on the other side, beauty tends to stand far off. It's something that when you read People magazine, you see who's the sexiest woman of the year, a man of the year, and you either got it or you don't. You can maybe go to a beauty salon and be tweaked a little bit. You can be, uh, you know, have all the hair in your body ripped out or something like that, and you can become more like that image. But there is beauty that stands over there and the gospel that often stands over here. I think tonight what we're trying to do is begin the conversation of saying, what does it mean to be a people who take seriously the idea that God has called us to be a beautiful people? That God has called us to live lives of beauty, to live beautiful lives, to some sense together make our lives a work of art. And that's going to require that we engage in different mediums, that as we sang a song of confession that uh, these guys led us through, that Emmy Lou Harris and people that are walking us through a cowgirl's prayer are in some ways putting us in touch with frames and words that we could not articulate on our own. That the gospel becomes alive, made well, that the good news is proclaimed in that moment of confession in a way that no matter how well I talk about it up here or Tim talks about it up here or Amy talks about it, it won't resonate. Or leading us through absolution in a words that say God is holding on to us. That we can sing it. That in our images we can look at it. And while at times we may come into contact with it in a way that seems like we're reading code that we don't understand. that by being drawn into it, it can help us begin to do the hard work of having our imaginations shaped by the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in John, when Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and you might have it to the full, that we are a people who live artistic lives in a way that we can understand what's being said there to, say, to, to help us un, see and imagine that the cross can make our lives beautiful in ways that we could not see without art in our midst. Tonight, as we move to the table, we're going to engage a practice a medium of practice that brings us into that imaginative realm 
where we are once again put in contact with the grace of God that says, in order to live in this world as Christians, you're going to have to imagine things a bit differently. You're going to have to break bread for your neighbor, share it, saying, this is what the reality of life really looks like. That this is what it means to live as a beautiful people of God. That you're going to pour drink for one another, proclaiming to one another that this is the blood of Christ, and in doing so, you're going to, in some sense, imaginatively proclaim to one another that pouring wine for one another can be an earth-shattering practice. That simple praise, doxology, and celebration can really, really be a life-altering event. Tonight as we come to the table, all of you are invited to come. At Emmaus Way, we celebrate an open table. Uh, we have wine or juice so uh, the wine, I believe, is in the white pitchers tonight. The juice is in the green pitchers. As we come, this will be a louder kind of part of our service. We'll come and we'll break bread for one another, handing it to one another, saying to each other, the body of Christ broken for you. And we'll pour, we'll pour wine or juice for one another, saying the blood of Christ shed for you. And as we do that tonight, having had this conversation of, on art we're going to be reminded that it takes an imagination to be a Christian people. That it calls us to live imaginatively in ways that stand at odds to the world around us. At times it's going to be like reading code, but at other times we're going to find that living in that world can be absolutely life-giving in an abundant way that we could not have imagined. Before we go to the table tonight, we're going to play the song of benediction. I'm going to ask if y'all would we'll do something odd tonight. Let's stand up and sing our song of benediction. And then I'll invite you to come to the table and make your way out in peace. Jesus is King 
Lord of all. Jesus is King and Lord of all. Jesus is King and Lord. Jesus is King and Lord. Jesus is King. Welcome to the table.